So missionaries, should we be sending them? What do you think? Maybe it's something for a bygone era. On this third episode of the Heart of Mission podcast, I'm going to put a bunch of tough questions to some pretty seasoned operators, and we're going to hear why they think it's still worth the massive commitment, and why if you're reading the Bible in English to internationals here in Australia, you may have some unfinished business. We're going to hear what life's like for Christians in Tanzania, some tips on caring for missionaries that you partner with personally, Plus, the first of three Global Mission Opportunities segments. If you've got that niggling feeling that maybe, just maybe, one day it could be you, well, Peter Scholl is going to help us think things through. Thanks for joining us. Heart of Mission, the podcast that was to be a conference. Summer conference may be cancelled, but let's continue investing in how God is at work globally. My name is Mark Peterson, and in this five-episode series, we'll explore the question, should we still be sending missionaries? What is the heart of mission that makes this so important? We'll hear from each of the conference speakers, as well as CMS gospel workers serving cross-culturally around the world. We have panel discussions, interviews, stories from the field, and much, much more. Listen out for a new episode each Monday, all focusing on God's global mission for a world that knows Jesus. You're in church one Sunday and the missionary is visiting. They're showing you the photos on the screen and it looks so different to your life. And then they say, hey, you reckon our country looks different in the photos? Just wait till you go and live there. And you think, I just don't know how I would manage that. Such big things to commit to for 10 years or more being in a different country. But I know that Jesus needs to be shared with the nations. So you're convicted and you start sharing with others that you're thinking of going overseas, that might be the right thing for you to do. And a friend says, hey, what about the internet? Surely mission agencies can move with the times and work out ways to connect you with people overseas virtually through schools or classes or seminars. And then you can be serving here in Australia as well. Because let's face it, Australia looks less Christian now than even five years ago. In this post-Christian era, maybe we need to focus our energies locally. These are just two ideas I've heard recently, questioning whether we should still be sending missionaries, the opportunities afforded by the internet and the great need here in Australia. Perhaps you've heard other challenges as well. There are so many internationals here in Australia. We can reach the nations right here without a visa. And many immigrants want to learn English. God has been so good in drawing people to faith in Jesus through the dedicated, humble work of Aussies sitting down and reading the Bible with internationals in English. So some of them will stay here, but the theory has developed. Maybe some of those internationals will take their new faith back to their country of origin. Could that work as a mission strategy? In episode two, we chatted about vulnerable mission, that vital principle that we serve the local church in other parts of the world. But if we push that a little, then am I needed over there at all? Why not leave the job of evangelizing in other countries to the local church in those countries? God's spirit will help them, won't he? Yeah, and then there's COVID. Surely now is not a great time to be putting yourself at the mercy of the medical system of a developing country. I'm hoping this episode helps you think through these things and other questions. 
We start with another great panel. Let's meet the guests. Well, it's very exciting to have this panel coming together for our third episode. And we're looking at the question, should we still be sending missionaries? This is the question that, in a sense, our whole podcast series is focused on, and it's a big one. Should we still be sending them? We have here on our panel, Peter Scholl. He is one of CMS Australia's regional mission directors, and that means that he oversees the work of the missionaries when they're actually on location. For a a large section of the world, he oversees those missionaries. Formerly a missionary himself in Mexico for 12 years, he was the uh, international director of MOCLAM, and that's a program for theological education by distance in the Spanish language. Great to have you with us, Peter. Thanks for having me. We also have Micah Prins, who has been for 17 years a missionary in Cambodia, just home now for final home assignment. Uh, Micah was serving in Hope School and led the planting of the Siem Reap uh, campus, was involved in teaching and leading also in the Phnom Penh campus as well, and was also involved for a while in income generation work with vulnerable women. It's great to have you with us too, Micah. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Great to be here. And we have T from East Asia. Been there since 2006, T, uh, and then as a family since 2011, so two major stints, but you're actually on a long pause from that work now. Uh, you have been the team leader for a team that works against child abandonment and care for those who have been abandoned and hoping to head back in due course. Great to have you with us, T. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Now, we're looking at this question, should we still be sending missionaries? I wonder if we could start by just trying to identify what are some of the arguments that are sometimes put for why we should perhaps not do it. Um, Peter, I wonder if I can go to you first. What do you think are some of the things that you hear uh, around some of the arguments for maybe spending our resources differently, maybe suggesting people stay here in Australia? Well, I think one of the the key things that's emerged during the the pandemic is the use of technology. Uh, The number of people we've heard of doing teaching classes by Zoom and interacting with people by Zoom, doing in in a sense doing their ministry by technology, um, that has raised the question of of why send people at all? Couldn't I be a a lecturer in a Bible college in some far flung part of the world from my lounge room here in Adelaide or in Sydney or wherever I am? Um, uh, add to that the proliferation of, of technology throughout the world. Uh, most of the world has, has mobile phone access, for example, um, to, to a certain degree. Uh, but if we, are, if, if we have this connectivity with people, this technological ability to connect with people, why not do it from here? Because doing it from here is a whole lot cheaper than sending people to some corner of the world to do it. So in your experience, what do, you think, um, what, what do you think ministry or mission via tech, say from Australia to a location, um, how, does, how well does that work? Well, it depends on the ministry you're doing, but I think, so my experience uh, doing it at the beginning of the pandemic from Mexico, I was teaching some classes throughout Latin America uh, via Zoom. No question, uh, most effective, my most effective interactions with students were with the students that I'd met in person. 
So I found that for a, a relatively short time, I was doing it for six months, say, um, for a relatively short time, I could maintain those relationships. And sometimes we would have a conversation outside class time, for example. But it was very, very difficult to initiate new relationships. Yes, I would have people in my class. Yes, they would sort of interact with me as a teacher in, ter in terms of I answer this question or I, I didn't pick up that, could you repeat that kind of thing. But the, the relational, the level of relationship that came uh, to have a, a pastoral conversation with them or have what I guess what I would term a discipleship conversation, uh, that was very, very difficult uh, via, via Zoom. And so I think I'd want to say the essence of our ministry, whatever it is that we're doing, whether it's theological education or, or evangelism or, or anything like that, it's relational. Uh, and I think uh, relationally, we have all realised the, the limits of, of technology. There's nothing like sitting around with someone face to face, having a conversation with them or going for a walk after class and chewing over a topic or meeting their family or having a meal with them. Uh, that, is, that is where the relational depth comes. And in a sense, that, that is where the allowance for discipleship happens. So, um, Micah, maybe I can go to you and your experience in Cambodia and particularly working in the school context. You did do some teaching online as well um, from here in Australia. What was your feeling about um, how that went? What were the pros and cons? Well, I think following on from what Peter said, um, you can Zoom the nations, but you can't disciple the nations via Zoom. You can't actually get alongside people. And similarly, I, I've had the experience of knowing my students and even then finding it hard to really connect. So much of our living side by side, the random the randomness of just sharing life alongside each other is where the true connections happen. You can schedule times, you can decide to have an official start and finish, but the reality is that to get to know anyone deeply, it's all the incidental moments that really connect with people. So in the classroom, face-to-face um, -face can't be compared with an online situation with students um, Teenage, be they teenagers or young adults or older people, it, it doesn't matter. It's always this challenge of really f connecting with people emotionally, which somehow needs to be in physical presence to really be effective. Okay. Now, T, perhaps we can go to you and your context. We've been talking about the, I guess, the relational, the need for developing relationships. Could you have done your can your kind of work be done remotely in any way at all? Like, tell us about how, how important it was to build relationships in your context. I mean, I think it's partly a cultural thing where we've been working, but in, in reality, if you're working with children who suffer neglect and severe trauma or are struggling with disability, um, the space in which online consultation can be truly effective is, is pretty limited. We have uh, Skyped in with speech pathologists or um, other health professionals when there's been a particularly urgent matter that we've needed insight um, into. But at the end of the day, we're still the ones on the ground face-to-face -face, that need to actually apply that treatment or make that assessment or um, do those exercises or, or whatever. So 
especially in contexts I think where there isn't necessarily the same opportunity to to speak openly about Christ uh, and that those those moments and opportunities come through um, what might be seen as helping ministries or, you know, social justice work or that kind of thing. Uh, those those ministries and opportunities that you can have through through being the hands and feet um, and through caring for, for those that have been rejected by society and, and sharing Christ's love in that way, you're not... You just can't do that online. And and you don't have the right to even try and connect online into those communities, into those vulnerable communities. Um, that's that's just sort of a neo-colonialism, really, to, to be thinking that you can inject a, a technological solution into into real physical pain. Um, I think it's just a misthinking of the of the opportunity and of the situation. All right, so just um, bouncing off that idea of neo-colonialism, and I, I assume by that you mean just that sense that from the West we, we kind of know what what is needed in other parts of the world. Um, in many countries there is already a church, including in the area where you have been working. Why not leave it to them? Why are they not in a position to be able to do this kind of ministry in their own context? Well, I mean, I, I question the premise. I do think they are able to do this kind of ministry and my team is predominantly local people. But, um, you know, it's. I think there's a couple of things that go on there. One is um, we all have our cultural blind spots. Um, you know, don't get me started on the things I think we need to be hearing in the critique of Australia about how we care for different populations um, in our country. but And so I think we all have our own cultural blind spots. And um, if we can be humble and vulnerable to that, often it is the outsider that can, can point out things that we gloss over and just take as normal. So I think um, there's a role for missionaries to come alongside local people and in the context of deep and genuine relationship point those things out, um, to be open to having things pointed out to you in that in that dynamic, but also to be able to say, you know, why why should someone with disability be seen as um, worthless? Why should they be seen as a drain um, on society? What what would Christ do in this situation and, and can we do something along those lines? And, and, you know, God's bigger than us, so often he will have been making local people feel uncomfortable about something but not necessarily able to put their finger on it. And certainly time and time again for myself and other expats on my team, it's as we've built relationship and been able to, in that context, have people feel safe to say, I feel uncomfortable about something, I don't know what it is, and then be able to say, well, I think it's probably that these children are are not getting any attention or love and, and somewhere deep in you, you know that's not right no matter what your culture is saying. And so let's let's try and change that. Um, but I also think, and this could be considered a bit of a misapplication or a stretch, but Jesus' words about a prophet not being honoured in their own in his own hometown, I, I see that at work in different places and in different ways uh, too. And I think for local people sometimes um, to speak out and to, to point the finger it, they're, they're kind of um, almost an Australian tall poppy syndrome in terms of, well, who do you think you are? You know, what makes you better? What makes you think you can tell us how to do things? Whereas as a foreign expert or as someone from a different background, there's almost a space in which new information can be brought in a less threatening way. Um, obviously, that's going to be clothed in in 
in a culturally appropriate manner and in character and um, with great sensitivity. But I do think there's a space for foreigners sometimes to point things out or to say things or to stir people up or to to gather people uh, in response to a situation in a way that a local person on their own um, would find hard to, to have the, the authority and the space to do that. It's very helpful. And I would refer our listeners back to episode two, where we had a panel specifically discussing the vulnerable mission question. And uh, your husband, Dee, actually talked a little bit about how this looks in terms of how, how, do, how does the outsider come in how do we take the Christ-like approach of being humble, not necessarily seeking our own glory in our mission, but seeking the flourishing of the local church through the various ways in which we serve them? I guess turning our attention to our local context, to Australia, there are a number of arguments, I think, for how um, we might reassess this whole question. I mean, firstly, it's very expensive to send missionaries. And so I guess the question is, is it worth the money that's involved and the time and the investment when after all, so many people are coming to us? Now, will COVID slow this perhaps for a time, but we we think that we will still be seeing plenty of people coming to us. In a sense, isn't it good for the church to spend their resources locally? Peter, would you like to um, reflect on that? It is true that people are coming to us, but the people who are coming to us are a drop in the bucket of the people who, like the bucket is the people who aren't coming to us. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Micah a, a few weeks ago and we were talking about the Cambodian community here in Adelaide. I can't remember, Micah, the, the, number, of pe- the number of Cambodian people here in Adelaide is, what, 10,000? It's about nine to 10,000. Nine to 10,000 people, Khmer people here in Adelaide. How many Cambodian people are there in Cambodia? That'd be well over 20 million, yeah. So the, the, the Cambodian community here in Adelaide is, is a very small drop. Um, so I think, yes, they are coming. And yes, we can, you know, whether we're doing campus ministry or, or, or parish ministry, uh, church-based ministry, we need to be sensitive and have our eyes open to look to the people who are around us. And as we look, we will see people from all corners of the, of the nation, uh, of, the, of the world, and we need to be serving them and reaching out to them. Fantastic. But it's not a either or. It's not a, oh, we're doing it here, so therefore we don't need to do it there. What about the idea of churches being involved in local cross-cultural mission, uh, that is, to people who've come here from overseas who are culturally connected back home, Surely they can then go home and minister to um, to their local to the to the local people back home. Is that a good argument? T, could you please uh, give us your thoughts? Yeah, I get this one a lot. There are a lot of students. Um, I mean, I, there's another aspect in terms of the type of people who are able to come to Australia, and and that that is such a limited demographic. But but in terms of you know, let's skill people up while they're here, send them back. They can be the missionaries in their home culture. That aspect of the question. Uh, I yeah, of course, let's do that. That's great. I do have a few um, over the last you know fifteen years observations about what that actually looks like. Um, for a lot of people here who come to know 
come to know Jesus in Australia. They do that in English. They do it through English Bible studies. They do it uh, with their English friends. Often, you know, the ministry is sort of an ESL-based one and um, that's the that's the doorway through to having those conversations. And that that's an excellent thing. But the a, a heads up for people doing that kind of ministry here is that a lot of people then get back to their home culture and it feels completely foreign. They click back into the person they used to be. They haven't met Jesus in their heart language. They haven't come to know him as their saviour um, from who they are as a whole person. They've come to know him as a student in Australia or they've come to know him as a business worker whose respectable white colleagues go to church and they've they've known him in that portion of his life, of their lives when that portion is gone they there's no place for Jesus so for ministries that are taking on that opportunity here in Australia I would say that's fabulous but please do be connecting um, these people with local communities, um, help them to be able to read the Bible in their heart language. Um, obviously, you might not be able to do that, but connect them with people who can. Um, enable them to meet with other local people to pray in their heart language. They need to know and respond to Jesus um, in their heart language because that is the the deepest reflection of who they are and the fullest expression of who they are as a person. Uh, and and. Once someone is worshipping in their heart language, then they're they're truly in relationship with Jesus. So um, that would be on that this end. And on the other end, you know, part the, a number of times we've had opportunities to meet people as they've come back in to their home country, um, and we've been able to be a bit of a bridge because we speak the language that they met Jesus in. And we speak their home language, maybe not as fluently as as would be helpful, um, but we definitely can connect them in with local churches and local gatherings and local believers um, and set them up in Bible study groups. So for people coming back into their home country, it's not a sort of seamless re-segue in. It it might be helpful to think about it um, for those who became Christians from non-Christian families and then going back to your family and trying to shine for Jesus but falling into old ways and patterns and habits and the way you relate to your parents and the way you relate to your siblings. It's like that on steroids. You know, you've gone back into this very foreign culture uh, and all of a sudden Jesus seems foreign as well. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, let's, you know, convert people while they're in Australia and send them back and they can be the missionaries. It it doesn't happen in isolation like that. and certainly on the other side in home country that, you know, that is another role that, that missionaries on the ground can play in helping them as they return. And, Peter, I think we'd also want to observe that we often see that many people don't head back. We get a lot of people who will actually want to uh, to stay here in, in Australia. Do you have any further thoughts on this whole question of them coming to us, can we send them back? Well, it, uh, that depends on the circumstances under which they come. Sometimes they'll come as students and they have to go back after four years. Sometimes they'll do a master's and stay on and then get a job. And, yeah, so, I mean, I, I would like to be encouraging people uh, to, to go back to their home countries because often they are coming from countries that it's pretty difficult for us to go to. Um, just to pick up on something that T said as well, and I saw this in uh, throughout Latin America, uh, one of the issues I think is by, yes, in the countries they are coming from, there may well be churches 
and someone who gets converted here as a student, for example, goes back to their home country, joins up with the church. By definition, the church they join up with back in their home country is going to be different to the church they, they were part of here. Uh, there, there will be culture involved in that. There's going to be all sorts of things involved in that, and that can be a real difficulty. Um, we certainly see uh, in Mexico and, and throughout Latin America people coming back from the US where they've been and they come back and they're disappointed by Latin American church because it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that, it, say, an American church had. And so there can be a, a bit of a, oh, you know, this is, this is only semi-church or there's a bit of a superiority thing going on. Um, I think to one of the things we can do to help people going back to their, to their home cultures and home countries is help them with humility and not just make sure they understand the gospel and make sure they're, you know, fully converted and things, but make sure their heart is converted to be humble in their service and they have a heart for people to, ser to, to serve people in their home country and they will do that under local leadership and within local structures and not try and go back and just, you know, change everything. I think these are really um, helpful discussions, aren't they? They're kind of saying that yes, there is a great ministry that can be done to those who are coming here and then returning home, but there is still a case for sending missionaries from Australia overseas. Micah, I wonder if we can just think about the Cambodian situation and where you think it would be really helpful to have missionaries and what is the kind of work that you think is most useful from your experience working in the school, which is a missionary school, so you may want to comment on that. Also, your husband, Wim, was working in translation of resources for the church. What, what are some of the things that, that spring to your mind as useful and important for missionaries still to be doing? I think one of the, the biggest impacts that missionaries can have is the fact that many of us, at least in our context, are coming from Australia, which at least has been a Christian nation. So many of the people that we are ministering to through CMS and particularly so in Cambodia are first generation Christians. So they've come out of um, the darkness of Buddhism in many, in many situations and they just don't have any hooks to hang this idea of what it means to be a Christian. So they're very open to any teaching, um, including a lot of false doctrines and false ideas. So I think Bible teaching and training in our context in Cambodia is just so significant. The idea of um, getting alongside new Christians, and those new Christians might actually be the minister of their church. Um, they don't have any long-term Bible training. They don't have a Christian person who they've observed over years. How do they deal with issues with their marriage? How do they deal with children who aren't wanting to follow after their parents um, spiritually? How do they uh, deal respectfully but also biblically with sin that they see in their, in their churches and congregations? So I think this is where long-term missionaries are key by building strong and deep and genuine relationships. They become the mentors of these new believers who are leading other Christian people. Um, and so I think Bible teaching, Bible colleges, Christians who can faithfully and culturally teach the Word of God. Um, and in Wim's context, he was working in a situation where he was helping to produce 
materials for Christian leaders, but in their heart language. So although they might well speak English and kind of understand it, to really have the Bible resourced in their own heart language is going to make an enormous difference to their understanding and the way that it challenges their their personal faith and growth. So I think Christian missionaries, just by who they are, as I said before, relationally in the everyday random living alongside, modelling Christian lifestyle and chatting and discussing things that just come up um, can't be replaced. And alongside that, some in our context in Cambodia, some really solid, theologically strong teachers who can teach the, the upcoming leaders what it means to really know the Bible and to be able to teach others. One of the things that you have helpfully clarified there, Micah, is we're particularly thinking here about long-term workers. We, um, you know, there is a case for short-term work, particularly to to get a sense of what the mission field is like and 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 whether you could, you know, survive and thrive in that kind of context. But we're wanting people who will learn the language, learn the culture, serve the local leaders, and and perhaps do that for a very long period of time. And, and we think that's worth doing because when you invest in those kind of relationships and that kind of depth of relationship, that's where perhaps the greatest fruit is to be born. I think that's definitely so. In a, in a culture like Cambodia, where people have been so damaged, so abandoned, so um, abused as a, as a whole culture, there's many Christian um, Christians who won't even really consider you genuinely committed to even their church unless you've been there a few years. And I remember a a great CMS missionary of many years told us when she first, uh, when we first went out, that on her fourth return after she'd been serving in that nation for more than 12 years, they sat down and said to her, now we are ready to hear what you have to say. Now we believe that you really do love us. You've come back again. And so in that context, I think if love is the the foundation, they need to know and feel that. And they do when they recognise that you're committed long term to them and to their country. That is such a big investment, isn't it? Peter, you you were also going to say something. Yeah, just picking up on what Micah just said there, my pastor, the, the pastor of the church that we went to in Mexico, first asked me my opinion about something after eight years. And I shared that with a few other CMS missionaries and they were kind of, yeah, that's completely normal. Um, But what I wanted to uh, say was great time for an advertisement uh, and that is CMS Checkpoint magazine comes out once a season, so four times a year. Uh, It's a magazine of, I don't know, a dozen, 15 articles written by CMS missionaries from around the world. All of them demonstrate the need, the the fruit of long-term mission in that they they are all writing articles thinking about the culture they are in, thinking about how the gospel speaks into that culture, thinking about how they can speak the gospel into that culture. And every time I read these articles, I'm thinking, these are articles written by people who have taken 10 years or 5, 10, 15 years to get where they are in their cultural understanding to allow them to think this way. Um, you, You don't get that in three weeks. Now, um, just to flag that next episode, episode four, we're going to be hearing from Kristen Slack on the whole question of uh, reaching the unreached, doing mission to unreached people groups. It is worth us just flagging that in this conversation as well, that 
uh, people may say, well, look, Australia is now post-Christian. So doesn't that mean that the unreached are right here in our neighbourhoods? And isn't there a sense in which if we're going to go to the unreached, we don't have to go very far? Well, yes, that's true in that there are lots of unreached people around us, but there's lots of unreached people around the world as well. I think if we we do just a basic resource balance, um, we're doing a... I don't want to say we're doing okay here, but we have the resources here. We have lots of resources here. Um, There are lots of churches here, lots of people who are experienced, well-trained, have a heart for ministry. Um, I want to say because we have that here, we should be exporting it. We should be going to where we're being invited to go uh, to to participate in ministry in other corners of the world. And there is a question there of, uh, I guess, trusting in the abundance of God, isn't there? That, you know, if we send somebody overseas... Um, there is, we, we have to trust that God will in, enable and support our churches locally. T, what would you like to add? I was just, I think, you know, across the world, like social media is such a big force and so many younger people in particular, but but even older ones such as myself, um, are so heavily influenced just by like random people, by influences, you know, and there's so many different voices and messages coming. Um, and I think on the whole, a lot gets taken on without too much thought or processing. Um, but not a lot of it's Christian. Not a lot of it in there is really speaking out for Jesus. It's it's driving us ever deeper into materialism and consumerism. Um, and I think the only way to to really challenge that for any individual, whether it's here in Australia or around the world, is is through a personal life or an, an, an individual that's living differently. That's interesting because they're not doing what all those other voices are saying. And so I think it's, again, another case of Peter's, um, it's it's not an either or. It's not, oh, no, we don't need to do mission here. We don't need to be living lives of integrity here. We don't need to be the touchstone or the, or the reference point for for teenagers and individuals that are swarmed with social media and um, fakery. Uh, No, we do. You do. We need Christians of integrity standing up, living lives that shine the light of Christ, um, that hold out more substance um, and and live that in reality day by day in neighbourhoods and in schools, communities and in universities. But that's needed in other countries too. And in countries that aren't post-Christian and don't have the cultural heritage that we take for granted, those new messages, that new wave, that force of social media is the only voice. Um, And in our country, you know, maybe it's not the only voice. It's the only voice in in comparison to strict regulation and surveillance and um, an ever-tightening grip on freedom. And so the choice then for people in our country becomes between that or between what social media is offering. And it's um, it's a false choice. So if you don't have Christians there that are actually able to, to, to say, no, that's not the only choice. Um, and for the church there, uh, you know, they don't have the same depth and heritage. It's not the same as Cambodia. The, the heritage goes deeper, I think. And there's there's more stability in some ways, but there's also a lot of generational trauma. There's a lot of intentional government um, undermining of any religion uh, and and a placing of of political ideology at the core um, of people's value systems. So you know you do need 
it's people from outside coming in and saying, or, you know, it's the choice is yours, but you do have more than one choice or you do have more than two choices. Um, Here's Jesus and this is what he looks like and this is is what he's calling you to. So I just, yeah, I think it's not an either or, um, but that it's a false, um, a false fantasy that we might like to tell ourselves, oh, that the job's done and we don't need to, to think sacrificially. We don't need to, to think about what more might be needed. I think also I reflect on the fact that uh, in Australia, I think about all of the, the friends or the neighbours, family, colleagues, uh, contacts through my children's school, all that kind of stuff. And I think, well, these people are now living in a post-Christian world and yet they are actually not unreached because they're my contacts. And, in fact, because of their connection with me, they are actually one, only one degree of separation away from eternal life through the gospel, which I can tell them. But there's just so many people in my world that I haven't got around to, to sharing that with yet. And certainly we want to say um, in, in a discussion about mission that we need to start on our own front door and our own uh, over our own back fence. Um, and, and yet the reality is things are changing here in Australia. Peter? The evidence is overwhelming, and this is for church members and church ministers out there. The evidence is overwhelming that a church that is involved in overseas mission, members of that church are massively more involved in local mission. So if you are you are a church supporting overseas missionaries, praying for them regularly from up the front, up the front, sending money, that sort of thing, there is no question that your church members will be more active in local mission. Uh, in in your neighbourhood. We get to go and visit lots of different churches and just backing up what Peter's said, you know, we've never been to a church that supports us and reads our prayer points and is praying for us regularly that doesn't also have um, a food drive and, um, you know, involved in scripture in schools and involved in neighbourhood uh, activities and reaching out to the local community. But we have been in churches where we feel like nobody knows our name, nobody's been praying for us, nobody knows what's happening and there's really not much else going on in the community either. It's just a habit. It's just a, a ritual that people are going through. I think if the Spirit's working um, and people are on fire to see the gospel go out, that doesn't have any borders. Uh, so, you know, reaching across the nations is is going to see a church that's healthy and engaged in its local community too. Yeah, so as we think of mission to the nations, I guess we are one of the many nations and uh, our focus should be, I guess, God's heart for the nations, our own nation, the nations that have Christian work already but could really benefit from more. And, of course, those many, many nations and people groups around the world where there is a minuscule witness for Christ. We should keep that in mind. I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to say, just to answer the question um, briefly and succinctly, should we still be sending missionaries? Peter, should we still be sending missionaries? Yes, we should, because uh, ministry isn't just about information transfer. It's about uh, discipleship and, and personal formation. And to do that, we need to be in relationship. Micah, should we still be sending missionaries? Absolutely. 
the Great Commission has not changed. Um, not everyone has been reached. And so we need to focus on the unevangelized and the unreached in the communities in which we go. Uh, certainly we need to be strategic. We might not be doing mission work the way we did it 50 years ago, but we must continue reaching out to the ends of the earth until Jesus returns. And final words, T, should we still be sending missionaries? Well, definitely if we want to be living a joy-filled and um, exciting life, uh, partnered with God in what he's on about. I think if we sit out of global mission, we sit out on what our Heavenly Father's heart is beating for and what he's doing and planning and preparing and activating every day. So, you know, you can sit on the sidelines and watch or you can um, be a part of it. Well, I'm deeply encouraged by all of you and the mission work that you've done and the continuing focus on trying to encourage mission. And uh, it, it is a great encouragement to myself and to many others and uh, we're, of course, hoping and praying that the Lord will raise up more workers for the harvest. And, uh, and that's a very exciting prospect as we look forward. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter Scholl and Micah Prince and also T. It's been great to have you with us. Thank you. We head now briefly to Tanzania in Africa, where Arthur and Tammy Davis are working to support and disciple student ministry leaders, partnering with TAFIS, the Tanzanian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. That's a sister movement of AFES here in Australia. They've said to us many times that TAFIS graduates stand out in the community for their upright living and integrity. Arthur and Tammy's pitch to students has been meet Jesus at uni and then take Jesus beyond uni. Student work in another part of the world is such a great way to serve Christ's kingdom. In the Heart of Mission podcast, I'd like to give you a brief look each episode at what life looks like for Christians in different parts of the world. We don't do mission in order to make the rest of the world look like us. We want to take an interest in what life looks like for them. Our curiosity is an expression of our love. What is life like for the Christians in Tanzania? Arthur and Tammy could do a whole episode on this, but have a listen to this short summary. Christians in Tanzania live in a spiritually plural world. So there's not just one faith tradition here. Uh, there's sort of a 50-50 split between Christians and Muslims in the towns at least. And there's lots of denominations of both of those. Actually, Islam is the much older tradition here. Um, people value harmony. Uh, so those communities all generally get along well with one another. Uh, but it doesn't mean you know a lot about other communities or even about your own. So a lot of Christians are born into uh, their denomination. They grow up in it. They take it seriously. It's part of their identity, but they don't necessarily um, know a lot about it. Um, the born again Christians, though, see Christ as directing all of their lives in a way that goes beyond denominations. And that means things like uh, not drinking alcohol at all and not going to the witch doctor. And the question that everyone's asking, whether they're Christian or not, is how do I live life well? And the answer that born-again Christians have is that you don't live life well by going to the witch doctor. The witch doctor puts too many regulations on you. It's too much of a burden. But Jesus, Jesus' yoke is light and he offers freedom and security. And so their message to everyone, whether they're one of the born into Christians or anyone else, is to come to Jesus. 
And um, what is, I think, often heard by outsiders as a kind of obsession with prosperity among Christians in Tanzania is actually a call to go forward in life but with Jesus instead of going forward with the powers and the witch doctors and others. So um, do pray for the church in Tanzania. Pray that Christ would be supreme here and that the church would be a wonderful expression of that. This is the first of three segments in the Heart of Mission podcast, focusing on global mission opportunities. And it's really great that we have Peter Scholl, Regional Mission Director, working with CMS Australia to help us talk through some of the global mission opportunities that you can access through CMS. We just wanted to have an opportunity to talk not only about what's out there in terms of the different sorts of countries and the different sorts of needs that are there, but also thinking about where people come to this from. You may have thought that your particular skill set or background just doesn't necessarily fit global mission. And we want to try and think through whether there are ways that you could potentially find yourself on the mission field. So Peter, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, the first of three topics we're looking at is equipping Christian leaders for church and society. And this comes straight out of the CMS mission. And uh, we'll come to another one in next week's episode, Reaching Gospel Poor Peoples for Christ. Uh, But this is really, this is a very exciting part of the CMS mission. And I guess I'd like to start by just asking you, when the church experiences rapid growth around the world, which it has in so many places, we may not be aware of that in Australia, but it really has grown in, in many, many parts of the world. What does that tend to mean in terms of the local churches? It is an exciting fact that in many places around the world, the church is growing, uh, in growing quite rapidly. Um, what that means is uh, you have very new and inexperienced uh, leaders of churches, whether they be clergy or, or lay leaders. It also means that you tend not to have uh, multiple generations of Christians. So uh, questions of discipleship and how should I be in my marriage now that I'm a Christian or what happens when my kids uh, are not following Jesus? Questions like that. Christians tend not to have an older Christian to go to because they've all become Christians at kind of the same time and kind of the same rate. So there's a, there's a, there's a width but not a depth to their, to their Christian life and experience. Okay, so that's interesting because you, we may just come to thinking about world mission by thinking, well, we want to go to the places where there hasn't been much growth in the church, and maybe we'll look at that in the next episode. But in this particular case, we're looking at where there has been, and we're, we're looking at what it might look like to equip Christian leaders for church and society. So CMS works in this space quite extensively. Do you want to give us a bit of an idea of what that work looks like? Yeah, so there's uh, one of the requests. So as CMS, we get requests from our partners around the world. Uh, We get a lot of requests to help with with leadership training in some form or other, Um, whether it's uh, rapidly growing churches, for example, uh, uh, rapidly growing uh, Christian population, or in other countries, part of the issue is the actual population is very young. So 
countries like uh, Tanzania, the average age of the, the whole population of the country is very young. So there, there's a kind of a, a lack of, of older, more experienced leadership. And, and we are invited into places like that uh, to help with training. Um, this training or this equipping takes many different forms. There's the, the formal theological colleges and, and Bible schools. Uh, there's the translation and, and or production of, of Christian resources uh, for use in schools and churches and things like that. Um, student work is huge. And then there's denominational programs like um, kids' ministry and, and uh, uh, um, women's, women's ministry resources and preaching programs and workshops and, and things like that that we, we are asked to be involved in. Okay, so somebody going into this sort of space probably is is going to be a theological, have some level of theological training themselves, aren't they? What what are the sort of um, requirements? What should somebody be thinking about if they're thinking, I'd really like to be involved in equipping leaders? Uh, if if you are in a, a college setting or a Bible school setting, the the rule of thumb is that you need to have a level of qualification one above that which you are teaching. So if you are teaching a certificate course, you need a degree in theology. If you're teaching a degree in theology, you need a, a, a master's, and, and a master's means a research master's, like an MTH. If you're teaching an MTH, you need a PhD, that, that kind of thing. So when we look at the, some of the colleges and Bible schools that we're role, uh, uh, um, involved in around the world, we see some of that. So we have people working in, in Namibia, at, at uh, degree and certificate level. We have people working in South Africa at George Whitfield College at PhD level. Um, we have people working in Chile, like Francis, uh, Francis Cook at the CEP, the Centre for Pastoral Studies in Santiago. That's kind of a, a high certificate level. So there's, there's quite a mix. Um, in fact, can I, can I talk about the CEP for a minute? The CEP's a great story. The CEP is... Uh, the Centre for Estudios Pastorales, or the Centre for Pastoral Studies in English. Um, Francis has been there for ages, and, and the Purdies are going there. It's really a great story. The CEP has, has existed for about 20 years or so, and CMS has been involved since the beginning. Um, throughout those 20 years, uh, they have trained in a two- or a three-year course uh, 93 full-time students, 71 part-time students, They've produced 34 ordained clergy and there's another 23 on the way. So what that means is about 75% of the ordained clergy in the Anglican Church in Chile are graduates of the SEP. That is, that is fantastic. Yeah, that's incredible. Not only that, but SEP has had students from nine different countries around the region. So Peru, Argentina, Bolivia, other... So it's becoming a, a regional hub for training. And some of those students have now gone back to their home countries and are looking to set up a SEP-type college in their home countries, um, which is one of our opportunities. Do you want me to talk about that? Absolutely. Okay, so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a student who went to SEP from Peru. Historically, Peru has had a Bible college... Uh, the Anglican Church in Peru's had a Bible college but hasn't been around for, I don't know, 15 years or so. He has gone to the SEP, done the course, loved it, has now gone back to Peru and has said, hey, we should try and do something like the SEP in Peru. 
At the same time, uh, MOCLAM, which was a ministry I was involved in while I was in Mexico, um, has been training Anglican clergy in, in uh, Peru. And those two things have now come together and the bishop and the theological education group in Peru have said to us at CMS, hey, can you help us set up a SEP-type college in Peru? So we need someone to go and do that. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so um, at the top end of um, academia, there, a person can, get, can do mission by training pastors Perhaps they, if they're going to be doing that at a higher level, they need a higher degree. Uh, but there's also lots of ways in which the church can be trained um, at a more of a certificate type level. You've kind of mentioned that. Now, MOCLAM, it's, it's a program that is a Spanish translation of a Sydney-based basic theological certificate. Um, first of all, what does it look like? What's that course look like and what sort of impact can that have in the church? And secondly, how do we make sure that it isn't imposing an Australian cultural way of doing things on another cultural context? Yeah, so uh, one of the things to understand about uh, churches and pastors in, in Latin America is that most of them are part-time. They're, they're bivocational. So they're working as a school teacher or whatever during the day and uh, they're pastoring their church at night. What that means is they don't have the the opportunity or the chance to go to somewhere like the SEP to do full-time theological ed education for two or three years. So what MOCLAM is doing is trying to take uh, base-level theological education to them uh, in a distance model. Now, sometimes we teach local classes, sometimes we teach an intensive conference, sometimes we teach courses um, just, you know, every Wednesday night at nine o'clock kind of thing. It, it varies. Uh, but... It's a wonderful tool because students all over the Spanish-speaking world uh, are doing these courses. Now, what we've had to think about is, yes, the courses have been written in English in a particular context in Sydney. Now, we've translated them into Spanish, but it's still just the translation. So what we've also done is around all the course materials, we've created workbooks and exercises and various other things that we do that are much more in tune with where they are culturally, where their needs are, where we might need to expand on things that are not their background, things like that. So it isn't just dumping material from Australia in Spanish, there you go, you know, effectively become Spanish-speaking Australians or Spanish-speaking Australian theologians, um, but we are wanting them to understand the Bible in their own context using the material that we're helping them through. Great. And just very quickly before we finish up here, a lot of us would really love to send workers from South Australia to the Northern Territory. We're aware of yes. Noongalinya College up there and the incredibly valuable work that that does training the pastors of Aboriginal churches in communities. Just tell us very quickly, what does that ministry look like and how would someone get involved in that? So Noongalinya College in, in Darwin is fantastic, uh, teaching relatively short certificate courses so people will come from communities in for a few weeks at a time or, or, or a, a block, several blocks of a few weeks to do courses um, at a certificate level, uh, which is fantastic. So we have people involved in teaching the courses but then also teaching some of the additional uh, skills needed, so helping with English, for example, or um, teaching courses to help the students to be translators. 
uh, of material into their own languages. So there's there's all sorts of great things happening there. CMS has had a long historical president, uh, presence in the Northern Territory and we'd certainly love to keep that going. We will be back in the next episode and we'll be looking specifically at the mission opportunities in reaching gospel poor peoples for Christ. Look forward to talking more about that then. Well, I wonder if I can talk with you again about partnership. After all, partnership is how the church does mission. It's not a solo sport. The four partnership essentials are pray, care, give and go. Last episode, we heard from Maggie Cruz in Cambodia on what turned out to be not one significant answer to prayer, but a list of significant answers to prayer. Today, let's think about care. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a confession to make. I have often felt that this was the least significant of the four, that you could almost drop it and the church could still partner with mission effectively. Until not too long ago, when I was on the platform at my church, interviewing some missionaries who were just finishing up, and our church was about to take on some new missionaries. I thought this might be a great opportunity to learn from the veterans, so the newbies are well set up. These guys had been in Southeast Asia. Life had been pretty hard, especially working in the medical front line in the fight against COVID. And I asked, what would you like to say to our gathering about how we can best support these new workers that we're sending out? Now, I'm the branch director and I kind of have to think about the finances, but money's in second place. Prayer is the engine room of all ministry, right? And of course, I'm going to be hoping that people might be inspired and consider actually going to the field. So, you know, I'm expecting a kind of pray, give, go kind of answer. How can we best support our new missionaries? You know what they said? Love them. Yeah, and it was quite emotional because right there on the platform, I could see in their eyes that mission had been hard, not just physically tiring, but emotionally hard. This is care. If we want to partner with missionaries, we need to love them in tangible ways. Kay is a worker we sent to Southeast Asia just last year to work in a Buddhist country teaching English in the hope of building relationships and witnessing for Jesus through those. We asked her for her thoughts on care. What does it mean to her on the field? I've been really grateful for the support I've received from my primary sending church, Barney's, who have journeyed with me on my path toward overseas cross-cultural work. It's been years in the making. Although only a small bunch, they were still willing to send me and do all they could to help make this work possible. As well as supporting me corporately as a church, prayerfully, financially, and giving me opportunities to share my experiences and use my cross-cultural training to teach and support others, a large proportion of individuals and families within the church have also decided to support me financially, receive my regular updates in order to pray in an informed way and send me messages of encouragement. These things are so important practically and have meant so much personally. <laughs> but Barney's does not bear this burden alone. A number of other churches and many other individuals and families now partner with me in these ways. 
as well as knowing that many have committed to making regular financial contributions to the work. I love receiving messages of encouragement in response to my updates and hearing of how my prayer requests have been prayed for during a Sunday gathering or in another midweek meeting. Knowing that people are actually reading my updates and sharing the burden of this work with me willingly and consistently is priceless. A few things stand out to me from what Kay has said. Firstly, partnership is personal. Even though a church partnership is a great way to pull a bunch of partners together, it does involve the engagement with individuals within that group, and that's what makes the difference. So maybe you hear about missionaries from the platform, but are you demonstrating care in some personal way? Secondly, care involves two-way communication. Signing up to receive partnership updates is great, but in the hustle and bustle of life, it's not that hard for prayer letters to be lost in the pile of other emails we receive. I personally find it helpful when reading workers' updates to let go of my mouse, my computer mouse, for just a bit. Before I start reading, just breathe and commit to spending a couple of minutes trying to take in what the worker is communicating. And Kay has also reminded me that receiving email replies is really appreciated. I often just hit reply before I've even worked out what to say, and then maybe just a sentence of thanks or acknowledging something I've just read. Sometimes I'll go back to a past update and see what's changed since then, whether there are prayer points that are still ongoing. Thirdly, she mentioned a sense of sharing the burden of mission. I think if I really care about the ministry that a person is doing, I will care about the country or the community that they're serving in. It's so easy these days just to stick the name of a country or a religion or a region into Google and find things out. And I care for what my partner missionaries are doing by praying not only for them, but also for their country and for the work of the gospel there. There are plenty of great sources of information about the church too. Try Open Doors, The Joshua Project, or I have the Operation World app on my phone and that's a great resource to find out stuff. I also think that advocating for the person you partner with is another great way of expressing care. Perhaps share updates with your home group or church, invite others to partner, or get in touch with us at the CMS branch for other ideas for how to be helpful. Well, that brings us to the end of our third episode of the Heart of Mission podcast. We've been trying to build a coherent answer to the question, should we still be sending missionaries? In episode one, Dr. Chris Fresh showed us from Isaiah that God has always loved the nations, that it was always intended that his people would include those from beyond Israel and that we would be his witnesses among the nations. In episode two, we looked at the kind of mission we're talking about, vulnerable mission that is Christ-like and driven by a desire to see the church around the world grow in being faithful disciples of Jesus. And in this episode, our panel has tackled the question head on, working through various objections. Next episode, we look at mission to the unreached. Kristen Slack, former missionary to India and Mauritius, will talk about the scale of the issue. Now, there are plenty of stats to make us wonder if the unreached could ever be reached. But he has a positive message. Doing mission to the nations is not hopeless or pointless. Quite the contrary, it boils down to what we actually think we're part of. Hope you can join me. Until then, may God strengthen you and thanks for listening.